Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The earliest service by Margaret Irwin. Mrs. Lacey and her eldest daughter Alice hurried through the diminutive gate that led from the rectory garden into the churchyard. Alice paused to call, Jane, father's gone on, under the window of her young sister's room. To her mother, she added with a cluck of annoyance, what a time she takes to dress. But Jane was sitting ready dressed for church in the window seat of her room. Close up to her window and a little to the right stood the square church tower with gargoyles at each corner. She could see them every morning as she lay in her bed at the left of the window, their monstrous necks stretched out as though they were trying to get into her room. The church bell stopped. Jane could hear the shuffle of feet as the congregation rose at the entrance of her father. Then came silence, and then the drone of the general confession. She jumped up, ran downstairs and into the churchyard. Right above her now hung the gargoyles, peering down at her. Behind them the sun was setting in clouds, soft and humid, as winter sunsets can only be in Somerset. She was standing in front of a tiny door studded with nails. The doorway was the oldest part of the church of Cloud Martin. It dated back to Saxon days and the shriveled bits of blackened, leather-like stuff still clinging to some of the nails were said to be the skins of heathens flayed alive. Jane paused a moment, her hands held outwards and a little behind her. Her face was paler than it had been in her room, her eyes were half shut, and her breath came a little quickly. But then, she had been running. With the same sudden movement that she had jumped from the window seat, she now jerked her hands forward, turned the great iron ring that served as a door handle, and stole into the church. The door opened into the corner just behind the rectory pew. She was late. Mrs. Lacey and Alice were standing up and chanting the monotone that had become a habitual and almost an unconscious part of their lives. Jane stole in past her mother and knelt for an instant a red pigtail, bright symbol of an old-fashioned upbringing, flopping sideways onto the dark wood. Please, God, don't let me be afraid. Don't, don't, don't let me be afraid. She whispered, she whispered, then stood and repeated the responses in clear and precise tones, her eyes fixed on the long stone figure of the crusader against the wall in front of her. He was in chain armour, the mesh of mail surrounded his face like the coif of a nun, and a high crown-like helmet came low down on his brows. His feet rested against the small lion, which Jane, as a child, had always thought was his favourite dog that had followed him to the holy wars. His huge mailed hand grasped the pommel of his sword, drawn an inch or two from its scabbard. Jane gazed at him as though she would draw into herself all the watchful stern repose of the sleeping giant. Behind the words of the responses, other words repeated themselves in her mind. The night is dust, his good sword rust, his soul is with the saints we trust. But he is here, she told herself. You can't really be afraid with him here. There came the sudden silence before the hymn, and she wondered what nonsense she had been talking to herself. 
She knew the words of the service too well. That was what it was. How could she ever attend to them? They settled down for the sermon, a safe twenty minutes at least, in the rector's remote and dreamlike voice. Jane's mind raced off at a tangent, almost painfully agile, yet confined always somewhere between the walls of the church. You shouldn't think of other things in church was a maxim that had been often repeated to her. In spite of it, she thought of more other things in those two Sunday services than in the whole of the week between. What a lot of other things other people must have thought of too in this church, she said to herself. The thought shifted and changed a little. There are lots of other things in this church. There are too many other things in this church. Oh, she mustn't say things like that to herself. Or she would begin to be afraid again. She was not afraid yet, of course. She was not afraid. There was nothing to be afraid of. And if there were, the crusader was before her his hand on his sword, ready to draw it at need. And what need could there be? Her mother was beside her, whose profile she could see without looking at it. She would never be disturbed, and by nothing. But at that moment, Mrs. Lacey shivered, and glanced behind her at the little door by which Jane had entered. Jane passed her fur to her, but Mrs. Lacey shook her head. Presently she looked round again and kept her head turned for fully a minute. Jane watched her mother until the familiar home-trimmed hat turned again to the pulpit. She wondered then if her mother would indeed never be disturbed, and by nothing. She looked up at the crooked angel in the tiny window of medieval glass. His red halo was askew. His oblique face had been a friend since her childhood. A little flat-nosed face in the carving round the pillar grinned back at her, and all but winked. How old are you? asked Jane. Six hundred years odd, he replied. Then you should know better than to wink in church, let alone always grinning. But he only sang to a ballad tune. Oh, if you'd seen as much as I, it's often you would wink. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, already, now they would soon be outside again out of the church for a whole safe week, but they would have to go through that door first. She waited anxiously till her father went up to the altar to give the blessing. After she was confirmed, she too would have to go up to the altar. She would have to go. Now her father was going. He took so long to get there. He seemed so much smaller and darker as he turned his back on the congregation. It was really impossible sometimes to see that he had on a white surplice at all. What was he going to do up there at the altar? What was that gleaming, pointed thing in his hand? Who was that little dark man going up to the altar? Her fingers closed tight on her prayer book as the figure turned round. You idiot, of course it's father. There, you can see it's father. She stared at the benevolent and nutcracker face, distinct enough now to her for all the obscurity of the chancel. How much taller he seemed now he had turned round, and of course his surplice was white, quite white. What had she been seeing? May the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. She wished she could kneel under the spell of those words forever. Oh, yes, said the little flat-nosed face as she rose from her knees. But you'd find it dull, you know. He was grinning atrociously. 
The two rectory girls filed out after their mother who carefully fastened the last button on her glove before she opened the door on which hung the skeins of men that had been flayed alive. As she did so, she turned round and looked behind her, but went out without stopping. Jane almost ran after her and caught her arms. Mrs. Lacey was already taking off her gloves. "'Were you looking round for Tom Elroy, mother?' asked Alice. "'No, dear, not specially. I thought Tom or someone had come up to our door, but the church does echo so. I think there must be a draught from that door. But it's funny. I only feel it just at the end of the evening service. You oughtn't to sit at the end of the pew, then, and with your rheumatism. Janie, you always come in last. Why don't you sit at the end?' "'I won't,' snapped Jane. What's, what's the matter, Jane? asked her mother. Why should I sit at the end of the pew? Why can't we move out of that pew altogether? I only wish we would. Nobody paid any attention to this final piece of blasphemy, for they had reached the lighted hall of the rectory by this time and were rapidly dispersing. Jane hung her coat and hat on the stand in the hall and went into the pantry to collect the cold meat and cheese. The maids were always out on Sunday evening. Alice was already making toast over the dining room fire. She looked up as the rector entered and remarked severely, You shouldn't quote Latin in your sermons, Father. Nobody in the church understands it. Nobody understands my sermons, said Mr. Lacey, for nobody listens to them. So I may as well give myself the occasional pleasure of a Latin quotation, since only a dutiful daughter is likely to notice the lapse of manners. Alice, my dear, did I give out in church that next Friday is the last confirmation class? Friday? cried Jane in the doorway with the cheese. And next Friday the last class. Then the confirmation's next week. Of course it is. And high time too, said Alice, seeing that you were sixteen last summer. Only servant girls get confirmed after sixteen. That settled it then. In a spirit of gloomy resignation, Jane engulfed herself in an orange. There were bright stars above the church tower when she went to bed. She kept her head turned away as she drew the curtains, so that she should not see the gargoyles stretching their necks towards her window. Friday evening found Jane at the last confirmation class in the vestry with her father and three farmer's daughters, who talked in a curious mixture of broad Somerset and high school education, and knew the catechism a great deal better than Jane. After they had left, she followed closely at her father's elbow into the church to remove the hymn-books and other vestiges of the choir practice that had taken place before the class. The lamp he carried made a little patch of light wherever they moved. The outlying walls of darkness shifted, but pressed hard upon it from different quarters. The rector was looking for his Plotinus, which he was certain he had put down somewhere in the church. He fumbled all over the rectory pew while Jane tried on vain pretexts to drag him away. I have looked in that corner. Thoroughly, she said. The rector sighed. What shall I say, since truth is dead? He inquired. So far from looking in that corner, Jane, you kept your head turned resolutely away from it. Did I? I suppose I was looking at the list of rectors. What a long one it is. And all dead. But you, father? He at once forgot Plotinus and left the rectory pew to pour with proud pleasure over the names that began with one Johannes de Martini and ended with his own. A remarkably persistent list, 
only two real gaps in the civil wars and in the 14th century. That was at the time of the Black Death, when there was no rector in this parish for many years. You see, Jane, um, 1349, and then there's no name till 1361. Giraldus Ate Welle. Do you remember when you were a little girl, very proud of knowing how to read, how you read through all the names to me but refused to say that one? You said, it is a dreadful name. And when I pressed you, you began to cry. How silly. There's nothing dreadful in Giraldus Atewele, began Jane. But as she spoke, she looked around her. She caught at the rector's arm. Father, there isn't anyone in the church beside us, is there? My dear child, of course not. What's the matter? You're not nervous, are you? No, not really. But we can find the Plotinus much easier by daylight. Oh, uh, and father, don't let's go out by the little door. Let's pretend we're the general congregation and go out properly by the big door. She pulled him down the aisle, talking all the way until they were both in his study. Father doesn't know, she said to herself. He knows less than mother. It's funny when he would understand so much more. But he understood that she was troubled. He asked, Don't you want to get confirmed, Jane? And then, You mustn't be, if you don't want it. Jane grew frightened. There would be a great fuss if she backed out of it now after the very last class. Besides, there was the crusader. Vague ideas of the initiation rites of knight and crusader crossed her mind in connection with the rite of confirmation. He had spent a night's vigil in a church, perhaps in this very church. One could never fear anything else after that. If only she didn't have to go right up to the altar at the communion service. But she wouldn't think of that. She told the rector that it was quite all right, really. And at this moment they reached the hall door and met Mrs. Lacey hurrying towards them with a letter from Hugh, now at Oxford, who was coming home for the vacation on Wednesday. He asks if he may bring an undergraduate friend for the first few days, a Mr. York, who is interested in old churches and, and Hugh thinks he would like to see ours. He must be clever. It's such a pity Elizabeth's away. She's the only one who could talk to him. Of course he will enjoy talking with you, father dear, but men seem to expect girls too to be clever now. And just as Janie's confirmation is coming on, she isn't taking it seriously enough as it is. Mother, don't you want us to play dumb crambo like the last time Hugh brought friends down? Nonsense, said the rector hastily. Dumb crambo requires so much attention that it should promote seriousness in all things. I'm very glad the young man is coming, my love, and I will try my hardest to talk as cleverly as Elizabeth. He went upstairs with his wife and said in a low voice, I think Jane's worrying rather too much about her confirmation as it is. She seems quite jumpy sometimes. Oh, jumpy, yes, said Mrs. Lacey, as though she refused to consider jumpiness the right qualification for confirmation. The question of the curtains in the spare room, however, proved more immediately absorbing. Hugh, who preferred people to talk shop, introduced his friend's hobby the first evening at dinner. He goes uh, grubbing over churches with a pencil and a bit of paper and finds things scratched on the walls and takes rubbings of them uh, and you call them graffiti. Now then, Father, any offers from our particular property? The rector didn't know of any specimens in his church. He asked what sorts of things were scratched on the walls. Oh, anything, said York. Texts, uh, scraps of dog Latin, aphorisms. Once I found the beginning of a love song. 
when a monk or, or anyone who was doing a job in the church got bored, he'd begin to scratch words on the wall, just as one does on a seat or log or anything today. Only we nearly always write our names, and they hardly ever did. He showed some of the rubbings he had taken. Often, he explained, you couldn't see anything but a few vague scratches, and then in the rubbing they came out much clearer. The bottom of a pillar is a good place to look, he said, and corners, anywhere where they're not likely to be too plainly seen. There are some marks on the wall near our pew, said Jane, low down, nearly on the ground. He looked at her, pleased, and distinguishing her consciously for the first time from her rather sharp-voiced sister, he saw a gawky girl whose grave, beautiful eyes were marred by deep hollows under them, as though she didn't sleep enough. And Jane looked back with satisfaction at a pleasantly ugly, wide, good-humoured face. She showed him the marks next morning, both squatting on their heels beside the walls. Hewitt strolled in with them, declaring that they were certain to find nothing better than the names of the present choir boys, and had retired to the organ loft for an improvisation. York spread a piece of paper over the marks, and rubbed his pencil all over it and asked polite questions about the church. Was it as haunted as it should be? Jane, concerned for the honour of their church, replied that the villagers had sometimes seen lights in the windows at midnight, but York contemptuously dismissed that. Oh, you'd hear as much of any old church. He pulled out an electric torch and switched it on to the wall. It's been cut in much more deeply at the top, he remarked. I can read it even on the wall, he spelt out slowly. Nemo potest duobus dominis. That's a text from the Vulgate. It means no man can serve two masters. And did the same man write the rest underneath, too? No, I should think that was written much later, about the end of the 14th century. Hartley will tell me exactly. He's a friend of mine in the British Museum, and I send him the rubbings, and, and he finds out all about them. He examined the sentence on the paper by his torch, while Hugh's improvisation sent horrible cacophonies reeling through the church. Latin again, and jolly bad monkish Latin, you know. Can't make out that word. Oh, well... It's an answer to the text above, I think. I say, this is the best find I've ever had. Look here, the first fellow wrote, um, no man can serve two masters, and then, about a century after, number two squats down and writes, well, as far as I can make it out, it's like this, show service, therefore, to the good, but cleave unto the evil. <laughs> Remarkable sentiment for a priest to leave in his church, for I'd imagine only the priest would be educated enough to write it. Now, why did he say that, I wonder? Because evil is more interesting than good, murmured Jane. Hmm, you agree with him then? What kind of evil? I don't know. It's just, don't you know how words and sentences stick in your head sometimes? It's as though we're always hearing it. Do you think you'll hear it tomorrow? asked York maliciously. He had been told that tomorrow was the day of her confirmation. She tried to jump up. But as she was cramped from squatting so long on her heels, she only sat down instead, and they both burst out laughing. I'm sorry, said York, I didn't mean to be offensive. But I'd like to know what's bothering you. What do you mean? Oh, you know. But never mind. I dare say you can't say. This at once caused an unusual flow of speech from Jane. Why should evil be interesting, she gasped. It isn't in real life. When the servants steal the spoons and the villagers quarrel with their neighbours, Mrs. Elroy came round to father in a fearful stew the other day because old Mrs. Croft had made a mocking of her. Oh, what? 
an image, you know, out of clay, and she was sticking pins in it. And Mrs. Elroy declared she knew every time a pin had gone in because she felt a stab right through her body. What did your father say? He said it was sciatica, but she wouldn't believe it. And he had to go round to Mrs. Croft and talk about Christmas peace and goodwill. But she only leered and yammered at him in the awful way she does. And then Alice said that Christmas blessings only come to those who live at peace with their neighbours. And Mrs. Croft knew that the blessings meant puddings. So she took out the pins and let them all in be. And Mrs. Elroy hasn't felt any more stabs. Mrs. Croft is a proper witch, then. York stood up, looking rather curiously at her shining eyes. Cloud Martin has always been a terrible bad parish for witches, said Jane proudly. You find that form of evil interesting, he said. Jane was puzzled and abashed by his tone. She peered at the wall again and thought she could make out another mark underneath the others. York quickly took a rubbing and, examining the paper, found it to be one word only and probably of the same date as the last sentence, which had caused so much discussion about evil. Mama, ah, I have it. Maneo. I remain, that's all. I remain? Who remains? Why, it's the same I who advises us to cleave to evil. Remembering, perhaps, that it hadn't been said then that the evil men do lives after them. She looked at him with startled eyes. He thought she was a nice child, but took things too seriously. Hugh's attempts at jazz on the organ had faded away. As Jane and York left the church by the little door, they met him coming out through the vestry. Lots of luck, said York, handing him the paper. Did you turn on the verger or anyone to look as well? No, why? Aren't the family enough for you? Rather. I was only wondering what that little man was doing by the door as we went out. You must have seen him too, he said, turning to Jane. He was quite close to us. But as she stared at him, he wished he had not spoken. Must have been the organist, said Hugh, who was looking back at the church tower. Do you like gargoyles, York? There's a rather a pretty one up there of a devil eating a child. See it? On the Sunday communion after the confirmation, the day of her first communion, Jane rose early, dressed by candlelight, met her mother and sister in the hall and followed them through the raw, uncertain darkness of the garden and churchyard. The chancel windows were lighted up. The gargoyles on the church tower could just be seen, their distorted shapes a deeper black against the dark sky. Jane slipped past her mother at the end of the pew. Except for the lights in the chancel and the one small lamp that hung over the middle aisle, the church was dark and one couldn't see who was there. Mr. Lacey was already in the chancel and the service began. Jane had been to this service before, but never when the morning was dark like this. Perhaps that was what made it so different, for it was different. Her father was doing such odd things up there at the altar. Why was he pacing backwards and forwards so often and, and waving his hands in that funny way? And what was he saying? She couldn't make out the words. She must have completely lost the place. She tried to find it in her prayer book, but the words to which she was listening gave her no clue. She couldn't recognize them at all, and presently, she realised that not only were the words unknown to her, but so was the language in which they were spoken. Alice's rebuke came back to her. You shouldn't quote Latin in your sermons, Father. But this wasn't a sermon. It was the communion service. Only in the Roman Catholic Church would they have the communion service in Latin, and then it would be the Mass. Was Father holding Mass? He would be turned out of the church for being Roman. 
It was bewildering. It, it was dreadful. But her mother didn't seem to notice anything. Did she notice that there were other people up there at the altar? There was a brief pause. People came out of the darkness behind her and went up to the chancel. Mrs. Lacey slipped out of the pew and joined them. Jane sat back and let her sister go past her. You aren't coming, Janie, whispered Alice as she passed. Jane nodded, but she sat still. She had let her mother and sister leave her. She stared at the two rows of dark figures standing in the chancel behind the row of those who knelt. She couldn't see her mother and sister among them. She could see no one whom she knew. She dared not look again at the figures by the altar and kept her head bowed. The last time she had looked, there had been two others standing by her father. That is, if that little dark figure had indeed been her father. If she looked now, would she see him there? Her head bent lower and sank into her hands. Instead of the one low voice murmuring the words of the sacrament, a muffled chant of many voices came from the chancel. She heard the scuffle of feet, but no steps came past her down into the church again. What were they doing up there? At last, she had to look, and she saw that the two rows were standing facing each other across the chancel instead of each behind the other. She, she tried to distinguish their faces, to recognize even one that she knew. Presently, she became aware that why she couldn't do this was because they had no faces. The figures all wore dark cloaks with hoods, and there were blank white spaces under the hoods. It's possible, she said to herself, that those are masks. She formed the words in her mind deliberately and with precision, as though not to distract her attention, for she felt in danger of screaming aloud with terror, and whatever happened, she must not draw on her the attention of those waiting figures. She knew now that they were waiting for her to go up to the altar. She, she might slip out by the little door and escape, if only she dared to move. She stood up and saw the crusader lying before her, armed, on guard, his sword half-drawn from its scabbard. Her breath was choking her. Crusader, crusader, rise and help me! She prayed very fast in her mind, but the crusader stayed motionless. She must go out by herself. With a blind rushing movement, she threw herself onto the little door, dragged it open and got outside. Mrs. Lacey and Alice thought that Jane, wishing for solitude, must have returned from the communion table to some other pew. Only Mr. Lacey knew that she had not come up to the communion table at all, and it troubled him still more when she didn't appear at breakfast. Alice thought she'd gone for a walk. Mrs. Lacey said in her vague, late Victorian way that she thought it only natural Jane should wish to be alone for a little. I should say it was decidedly more natural that she should wish for sausages and coffee after being up for an hour on a raw December morning, said her husband, with unusual asperity. It was York who found her, half an hour later, walking very fast through the fields. He took her hands, which felt frozen, and as he looked into her face, he said, Look here, you know, this won't do. What are you so frightened of? And then broke off his questions told her not to bother to try and speak, but come back to breakfast, and half pulled her with him through the thick, slimy mud back to the rectory. Suddenly she began to tell him that the early service that morning had all been different, the people, their clothes, even the language. It was all quite different. He thought over what she stammered out, 
and wondered if she could somehow have had the power to go back in time and see and hear the Latin Mass as it used to be said in that church. The old Latin Mass wasn't a horrible thing, was it? Jane, your father's daughter needn't ask that. No, I see. Then it wasn't the Mass I saw this morning. It was... He spoke very low, so that he could hardly catch the words. There was something horrible going on up there by the altar, and they were waiting, waiting for me. A hand trembled under his arm. He thrust it down into his pocket on the pretext of warming it. It seemed to him monstrous that this nice, straightforward little schoolgirl, whom he liked best of the family, should be hag-ridden like this. That evening he wrote a long letter to his antiquarian friend Hartley, enclosing the pencil rubbings he had taken with the words scratched on the wall by the rectory pew. On Monday he was leaving them to go and look at other churches in Somerset. He looked hard at Jane as he said goodbye. She seemed to have completely forgotten whatever it was that had so distressed her the day before, and at breakfast had been the jolliest of the party. But when she felt York's eyes upon her, the laughter died out of hers. She said, but not as though she had intended to say it, You will come back for Wednesday. Why, what happens on Wednesday? It, it is full moon, then. That's not this Wednesday, then. It must be Wednesday week. Why do you want me to come back then? She could give no answer to that. She turned, self-conscious, and began an out-of-date jazz song about a Wednesday week down in old Bengal. It was plain she didn't know why she'd said it, but he promised himself that he would come back by then, and asked Mrs. Lacey if he might look them up again on his way home. In the intervening ten days, he was able to piece together some surprising information from Hartley, which seemed to throw a light on the inscriptions he had made at Cloud Martin. In the reports of certain trials for sorcery in the year 1474, one Giraldus Atewele, priest of the parish of Cloud Martin in Somerset, confessed under torture to having held the Black Mass in his church at midnight on the very altar where he administered the Blessed Sacrament on Sundays. This was generally done on Wednesday or Thursday, the chief days of the witches' Sabbath, when they happened to fall on the night of the full moon. The priest would then enter the church by the little side door, and from the darkness in the body of the church those villagers who had followed his example and sworn themselves to Satan would come up and join him, one by one, hooded and masked, that none might recognize the other. He was charged with having secretly decoyed young children in order to kill them on the altar as a sacrifice to Satan, and he was finally charged with attempting to murder a young virgin for that purpose. All the accused made free confessions towards the end of their trial, especially in as far as they implicated other people. All, however, were agreed on a certain strange incident, that just as the priest was about to cut the throat of the girl in the altar, the tomb of the crusader opened, and the knight who had lain there for two centuries arose and came upon them with drawn sword, so that they scattered and fled through the church, leaving the girl unharmed on the altar. With these reports from Hartley in his pocket, York travelled back on the Wednesday week by slow cross-country trains that managed to miss their connections and land him at Little Borridge, a station for Cloud Martin at quarter past ten. The village cab had broken down. There was no other car to be had at that hour. It was a six-mile walk up to the rectory. There was a station hotel where it would be far more reasonable to spend the night and finish his journey next morning. Yet York refused to consider this alternative, 
all through the maddening and uncertain journey, he had kept saying to himself, I shall be late, though he didn't know. For what? He had promised Jane he would be back this Wednesday, and back he must be. He left his luggage at the station and walked up. It was the night of the full moon, but the sky was so covered with cloud as to be almost dark. Once or twice he missed his way in following the elaborate instructions of the station master, and had to retrace his steps a little. It was hard on twelve o'clock when at last he saw the square tower of Cloud Martin Church, a solid blackness against the flying clouds. He walked up to the little gate into the churchyard. There was a faint light from the chancel windows, and he thought he heard voices chanting. He paused to listen, and then he was certain of it, for he could hear the silence when they stopped. It might have been a minute or five minutes later that he heard the most terrible shriek he had ever imagined, though faint, coming as it did from the closed church, and knew it for Jane's voice. He ran up to the little door and heard the scream again and again. As he broke through the door he heard it cry, Crusader! Crusader! The church was in utter darkness. There was no light in the chancel. He had to fumble in his pockets for his electric torch. The screams had stopped, and the whole place was silent. He flashed his torch right and left and saw a figure lying huddled against the altar. He knew that it was Jane. In an instant he had reached her. Her eyes were open looking at him, but they didn't know him, and she didn't seem to understand him when he spoke in a strange rough accent of broad Somerset that he could scarcely distinguish. She said, It was my body on the altar. Well, that was the earlier service by Margaret Irwin, and I just had a bit of a disaster because I lost my edits. I had to do the last half again after editing it, but never mind, there we are, hopefully. Uh, and I think maybe I was lazy the second time, didn't polish the audio as much as I could have anyway. It's a story, I liked it, it was a good story. Uh, it's a story that was recommended to me by a listener. And you know, now I've got this spreadsheet where I keep people's suggestions of stories I should read. And I hadn't got one then, so I can't remember who it is. So if it is, if you remember who you are, please remind me, because then I'll go, oh yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm really grateful to you for recommending that. It was a good story. Let me tell you something about Margaret Irwin, okay? I got this book actually because when it was recommended to me, I sent off on, on eBay, I believe. I got a copy of it uh, from, it's published in 1978. It's a collection of her supernatural tales called Bloodstock. I think it was originally published in 1953, but I had the 78 version. And there are um, the stories from Ireland. There's about five there, uncanny stories of just four, which includes this one. And uh, Mrs. Oliver Cromwell and Where Beauty Lies. Now, she was, uh, Margaret Irwin was a pretty prolific writer. She was born in 1889 in Highgate, London, one of my favourite places. If You may have heard my story, The Highgate Vampire, set in Highgate Cemetery. There's a bit more to Highgate than its cemetery, let me tell you that. Great pub there where they serve Camden Pale Ale, called The Angel, I think, um, which I've spent some time in when we visited. We stayed in Highgate, not this year, but just pre-lockdown. Uh, anyway, that's a slight digression. She died in London. I'm not sure where in London, but in 1967. Now, her father was an Australian from Perth, from West Australia. But her mother was English, and her mother's father was a colonel in the 16th Lancers. 
which is a British cavalry regiment. But and, but sadly, they seem to have died quite young because she was brought up by her uncle in Bristol. She started writing professionally in the 1920s and specialised in historical fiction, particularly of the Elizabethan and early Stuart periods. Uh, she did a lot of historical novels and was said to be an extremely fine writer of these things. And uh, she uh, was, had a, an eye for detail and knew a lot about the period. She wrote some uh, two fantasy novels, funnily enough, one about a time slip, which I like, another about a wizard's daughter. Um, I don't know what I think about wizard's daughters. I don't think I've ever met any. Anyway, so she married a book illustrator who did the covers for some of her books. And that's all I could find about her. She didn't put any biographical information in this volume of hers, which was a pity. She seems to be a thoroughly nice person. It was quite Jamesian, wasn't it? The earlier service, it's about kind of bookish people and rectors and vicars in country churches who dig around and find Latin inscriptions. So that's very M.R. James, isn't it? And it turns out that uh, hidden behind these Latin inscriptions is a dark secret of dark goings on in the past, Very also very M.R. James. R.H. Molden as well, who was a Jamesian kind of guy, wrote about vicars in, in the rural backwoods. But of course, James wrote about East Anglia, as did R.H. Molden, the flat, damp bit, the, the bulge that sits on England to the east. And this is kind of West Country, Somerset. I, I like Somerset, you know. Bath is in Somerset. Now, you may say Bath. When you go to Bath, they say Bath, Bath. So I reckon I can get away with Bath. And Glastonbury, of course, that hippie centre of the world, which I like. Apparently, I'm a hippie. My daughter said I was a, a cool hippie dad, which I think is, is nice, isn't it? I think it's a compliment. I think she certainly meant it as a compliment. Um, anyway, enough, to, enough about that. And also there's one um, Christmas Eve on a Haunted Hulk by Frank Cowper. And then his mate is a vicar of these rural, rural parishes. And so we get this picture. And I think this is possibly how this class of people saw the world. Um, th there were in these remote villages across, let's say, England, you have the vicar have the doctor, you have the solicitor potentially. And this comes up in The Woman in Black as well, which is a pastiche of this, this kind of story. A good one, but it is still a pastiche. These are the only educated people you can find for miles around, and they're surrounded by these brooding interbed peasants who know nout, who just steal these spoons and quarrel with each other and, and make mawkins. That's a great thing, isn't it? A mawkin. You've got to be careful about a morkin because it's not a merkin. I only learned what a merkin was not long ago. But a morkin is a different thing. And you stick pins in it. You've got to be careful not to stick pins in your merkin. Let's get back to witchcraft in rural communities. The Blood on Satan's Claw. I don't know if you've seen that movie. If you haven't, go and see it. And then that was, well, 1970s set in Suffolk or Sussex, Suffolk, one of those. And I wonder if that wasn't influenced by this story, or there is this general, as I say, Emma James, folk horror, rural England. I've read so many stories out on this podcast now that there are endless references, but certainly Thrawn Janet, which is a Scottish story of a, a woman's dealings with the devil. Then The First Chief by H.R. Wakefield, which relates to old pagan survivals, rather than Satanism, refers to going back to the roots of paganism all about rural folk getting up to no good and having pagan ways. I wanted to say something about Satanism, as you do. I mean, I imagine you probably just sit and think, oh, I want to say something about Satanism. I was saying that the Blood on Satan's Claw, folk horror story from the 1970s, a movie, which is definitely worth a look. 
if you think of the, the Wicker Man and stuff like that, and the first chief, a lot of the folk horror stuff set in rural Britain, because Wicker Man's in Scotland, is pagan. And that ties in with, you think about the 50s and the growth of the creation of the Wicca, Wiccan religion and Gardner. And there was, there was this mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century turning to the soil, which resulted in fascism as well, really, but blood and soil and things like that. But it was a deep interest in the, I mean, I suppose end of the 19th century as well, folk dance, folk stories, antiquarian, looking back at the roots, so turning away from sort of classical posh culture and looking at the indigenous culture of the people. And and in Ireland as well, you know, W.B. Yeats and Singh, and Lady Gregory in the, the Irish past. So there was a huge movement looking back at this, and it tends to look at a, a impossible-to-recover pagan idyll or, and the British Isles and in Europe as well, some of the Slavonic movements and things that are similar, and uh, the Italian witches um, thing, the Aradia and all of that. So there was this big movement anyway. A turn away from modernism. And I've said before, I think people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were part of that as well. You know, the Industrial Revolution had really uglified people's lives and they wanted to turn back to what they saw as an idyllic past where there was a purity in the land and the, the roots, et cetera, et cetera, which, again, is probably not true at all. Um, what they say about um, the medieval peasant's life was nasty, brutish and short. So uh, it, it was a myth, but it was um, a dream that was created. And, and you know, think of the pre-Raphaelites and William Morris and all of these people. So end of the 19th century, right through. That is a, certainly a British thing possibly partly European. When you look to France, however, and look at people like Baudelaire and uh, Haussmann and people like this, their rejection of their established religion, in, in their case, the Catholic Church, did look at Satanism. You know, Baudelaire and Haussmann, Aurebor and, and things like this, that they are satanic, which isn't so common in British stories. However, I'm then reminded of in the, in the 60s and 70s, Dennis Wheatley, who made a lot of money from writing stories of um, devil worship, uh, which is pretty scary. Uh, but it w wasn't the main thing, this British kind of rejection of the modern world. But we do sit in France. And so I think it's unusual in that. And I was going to say something about Satanism, which was to say, I never really fancied it. Uh, whereas, you know, Going into a wood, taking your clothes off on a, on a nice night when it's warm, dancing around a bonfire, having a, a glass of grog with your naked friends. Maybe, I could maybe be in for that. Maybe we'd get morkins out and start sticking pins in them. I'm only joking, I wouldn't do a morkin, don't get me wrong. But yeah, you know, dancing naked around the fire on a nice summer's eve uh, with cats and things. It reminds me of a, of a book called uh, The Midnight Folk by John Macefield, one of my favourite children's books. And they, there are witches in that, and that, that is kind of cool. I'd like to go to one of their do's. But anyway, magnificent ramble today, possibly, you know, incoherent, quite possibly. I'm sitting around with my Christmas decorations up in my den at the top of the house with my reconstructed hi-fi, because at the moment I'm getting into hi-fi and I want to make a, a, a good quality hi-fi from cheap bits. So I got a Sony CD for £10 and I got some Tannoy speakers for £30. Uh, and I, I bought a little amp for 40 quid so i'm getting some really nice sounds out of it and i've become a bit of a sound snob and i went to see a band night before last 
And I was very disparaging of the mix. I said to Sheila, oh, who's mixing this? I said, can't you hear the, 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 the saxophone's just lost and there's a lot of noise in the top two thirds. And I'm like, oh, I would have mixed that down. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Really, realistically, I'm like one of those, Olymp you know, Olympics comes on and they put curling on and somebody said, you know, within a week, people are an expert in curling and they're advising the player. You fool, you idiot, why did you do that? You know, these people have been curling all their lives. And so I'm a bit like that about um, mixing now. I've never mixed anything in my life. I'm quite enjoying the winter at the moment. I'm enjoying the dark and I'm enjoying the lights and I'm quite enjoying the cold. It's been frosty. So there we are. I hope you're enjoying the winter too because there is beauty in darkness. Yes, my friends, there is beauty in darkness. And I don't mean wickedness, I just mean darkness. The stars come out and they're bright. Everything's good. There's beauty everywhere, man. There really is. What was uh, my daughter saying about me being a hippie? Isn't that so? 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 Is